Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, amid so many business and economic tragedies of the COVID-19 shutdowns, we take a look at businesses that boomed. When you're in the middle of a cultural sea change, really an earthquake when we're talking about all that's happened in the last two years or so, the COVID pandemic, the shutdowns, the vaccine mandates, the change in our culture, our work, our economy, our global relationships. Well, I guess you can know that you're in the middle of something really big, but what the permanent changes are will not be very clear until we look back maybe even decades down the road. And I started thinking about the other huge changes in American culture and what prompted them. And that's related to the cover story this week, on full measure, that is Sunday, November 7th. First of all, I started out looking into what industries and businesses did well during the pandemic, because we already know about the devastation and all the restaurants and health clubs and small businesses that went belly up. But there hasn't been a whole lot of reporting on all of the industries and businesses and the new businesses that emerged and the ones that did well as a result of the pandemic. Those that were, for whatever reason, positioned well for this catastrophe or who moved quickly and took advantage of the new realities we found ourselves operating in. So as I was looking into the hard numbers, how much money certain industries and sectors made during the COVID-19 shutdowns, for example, I started thinking about major sea changes and I spoke to economist Peter Morisi, who also talked about all of this. He brought up World War II. He said that the COVID shutdowns have spurred transformative changes in the American economy and society, much like we saw during and after World War II. Radar, he said, is really nothing but television. And television technology was languishing early on in the late 1930s, kind of waiting to happen, as he put it. But the burst of usage during World War II of technologies that make TV possible caused it to really just burst right out after World War II. There was a device called the Cavity Magnetron, which generated microwaves for advanced radar war technology during World War II. According to some research I found, it said the Cavity Magnetron, this device, not only proved essential in helping to win World War II, but it also forever changed the way Americans prepared and consumed food. Have you guessed it yet? The cavity magnetron generates microwaves. And again, according to this research, it says during World War II, the ability to produce shorter or micro wavelengths through the use of a cavity magnetron improved upon a pre-war technology 
and resulted in increased accuracy over greater distances. It goes on to say radar technology played a significant part in World War II and was of such importance that some historians have claimed that radar helped the Allies win the war more than any other piece of technology, including the atomic bomb. I don't know about that. Maybe they're right. It goes on to say after the war came to an end, cavity magnetrons found a new place away from warplanes and aircraft carriers and instead became a common feature in American homes as microwave ovens. I'm going to read you a little bit from the National World War II Museum of New Orleans website, which is nationalww2museum.org. They're talking about these advancements in technology. Quote, Percy Spencer, an American engineer and expert in radar tube design who helped develop radar for combat, looked for ways to apply that technology for commercial use after the end of the war. The common story told claims that Spencer took note when a candy bar he had in his pocket melted as he stood in front of an active radar set. Spencer began to experiment with different kinds of food, such as popcorn, opening the door to commercial microwave production. Putting this wartime technology to use, commercial microwaves became increasingly available by the 1970s and 1980s, changing the way Americans prepare food in a way that persists to this day. The ease of heating food using microwaves has made this technology an unexpected feature in the 21st century American home. Reading on, it says, More than solely changing the way Americans warm their food, radar became an essential component of meteorology. The development and application of radar to the study of weather began shortly after the end of World War II. Using radar technology, meteorologists advanced knowledge of weather patterns and increased their ability to predict weather forecasts. By the 1950s, radar became a key way for meteorologists to track rainfall as well as storm systems, advancing the way Americans followed and planned for daily changes in the weather. This website goes on to note another technology that was jump-started or advanced quickly during World War II. It says, similar to radar technology, Computers had been in development well before the start of World War II. However, the war demanded rapid progression of such technology, resulting in the production of new computers and unprecedented power. One such example was the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, ENIAC, one of the first general-purpose computers, capable of performing thousands of calculations in a second. ENIAC, I don't know if they say ENIAC, but ENIAC, was originally designed for military purposes, but it was not completed until 1945. Building from wartime developments in computer technology, the U.S. government released ENIAC to the general public in early 1946, presenting the computer as a tool that would revolutionize the field of mathematics. Little did they know how big it would really become, not just in mathematics. Continuing reading, it says taking up 1,500 square feet with 40 cabinets that stood 9 feet in height, ENIAC came with a $400,000 price tag. The availability of ENIAC distinguished it from other computers and marked it as a significant moment in the history of computing technology. By the 1970s, the patent for the ENIAC computing technology entered the public domain, lifting restrictions on modifying these technical designs. Continued development over the following decades made computers progressively smaller, more powerful, and more affordable. 
And one last category that was greatly advanced that we'll talk about during World War II, which has similarities and comparisons to the COVID sea change we'll talk about in a moment, medical advances. Reading from the website, again, quote, along with the advances of microwave and computer technology, World War II brought forth momentous changes in the field of surgery and medicine. The devastating scale of both world wars demanded the development and use of new medical techniques that led to improvements in blood transfusions, skin grafts, and other advances in trauma treatment. The need to treat millions of soldiers also necessitated the large-scale production of antibacterial treatment, bringing about one of the most important advances in medicine in the 20th century. Can you guess what that is? Even though the scientist Alexander Fleming discovered the antibacterial properties of the penicillin notatum mold in 1928, commercial production of penicillin did not begin until after the start of World War II. As American and British scientists worked collectively to meet the needs of the war, the large-scale production of penicillin became a necessity. Men and women together experimented with deep tank fermentation, discovering the process needed for the mass manufacture of penicillin. In advance of the Normandy invasion in 1944, this is interesting, scientists prepared 2.3 million doses of penicillin, bringing awareness of this miracle drug to the public. As the war continued, advertisements heralding penicillin's benefits established the antibiotic as a wonder drug responsible for saving millions of lives. From World War II to today, penicillin remains a critical form of treatment used to ward off bacterial infections. Again, with thanks for this information from the National World War II Museum, New Orleans. So in my cover story interviewing economist Peter Morisi, he pointed out that in addition to the war technology, the cavity magnetron that generated microwaves and helped us invent microwave ovens, that the same technology was then used to develop networks to send TV signals, which was very transformative. Of course, television soon became a major part of American culture. Yes, Americans had radio and movies and newsreels before that, but this was far different. So what is all of that comparable to today? The first thing Marisi brought up was video conferencing. For example, Zoom. People, of course, knew about and used Zoom prior to the COVID shutdowns. But it became just ubiquitous, whether we're talking about school function or office functions or social events. There was nothing like this before the COVID shutdowns. Marisi also mentioned telemedicine. And he pointed out that years ago, he said when he was a kid, doctors would get on the phone and treat people or give them advice or talk with them about their health. But he says they sort of stopped that in the era of insurance insurance requirements and regulations and how payments were controlled and office visits. But due to the COVID shutdowns and the changes in how we did our medical business, doctors began talking to patients more on the telephone or using computers and video hookups, something that for whatever reason the industry had been reluctant to do until this point. Along with these big transformative changes that are happening a lot of money's being made by some companies. After a short break, we'll quantify some of that. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. 
Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We're back. And in my cover story this week on Full Measure on Sunday, November 7th, I thought it would be fun and interesting to look at some industries that did well amid all of the industries that did so poorly during the COVID shutdowns. Some of them were pretty unexpected. And I'll go over a couple of the categories with you right now, but you can catch a more complete rundown in the cover story. I mean, we knew as we went along that there was going to be money to be made in the toilet paper industry, and we knew that hand sanitizers were selling like crazy. But something I don't think anybody would have predicted in advance, a boom in the building of swimming pools. I looked into how much money Americans spent on swimming pools during the 2020 shutdown, and I happen to know anecdotally that there are backlogs for people that want to build swimming pools in some areas even today. In 2019, prior to the shutdowns, American homeowners spent about $3.9 billion building 78,000 new pools. I'm not counting commercial pools here. These are pools at people's houses. In 2020, while we were drowning in COVID, we spent $5.4 billion on 96,000 pools. So from $3.9 billion to $5.4 billion, while people were out of work and out of jobs, they were still building pools. That was a record 24% growth for the industry in one year. Let's take a look at video conferencing since I mentioned that before the break. Zoom says that its users increased from 10 million before the shutdowns to 300 million. But as far as how that translates to money, in 2019, before the shutdowns, Zoom's pre-tax profits were about $16 million. $16 million. In 2020, that number shot up nearly 4,000% to $660 million. So from $16 million to $660 million. And when I checked, the increases were even bigger this year. And then taking a look at remote medical care, also mentioned before the break. In 2019, prior to the shutdowns, the total revenue of the top 60 virtual health companies added up to about $3 billion. In 2020, it was $5.5 billion, so getting close to doubling what it was before. Interestingly, I saw an analysis of which specialties in medicine were more likely to use telehealth, and number one was psychiatry, which I guess makes sense. A lot of it is not necessarily based on physical observation or having to touch the person. It's more, I guess, talking. There was substance use disorder treatment at number two in terms of more likely or most likely to use telehealth. I'll read a couple more in order on the list. Endocrinology, rheumatology, gastroenterology, neurological medicine, ENT medicine, pulmonary medicine, infectious diseases, and it goes on down to the end with ophthalmology and orthopedic surgery, least likely to be using telemedicine among the specialties. 
Anyway, one thing that's interesting in terms of what is probably going to be long-term change, even after much of the country opened back up, doctors continued to offer virtual visits because now the systems were in place and had been established. And this year when I looked, I saw data that said 84% of doctors are still offering virtual visits. How about the meal kit home delivery business? As you work around on the web or watch TV, you probably see a lot of ads for these companies. And there are a lot of them now. And talk about a change in fate. Probably the biggest difference I saw was for a company called HelloFresh. Listen to this. In 2019, prior to the shutdowns, HelloFresh is said to have posted a net loss of $445 million, a net loss of $445 million. What happened in 2020 with all the shutdowns, the company posted a $446 million net profit. We're talking about close to a billion dollars difference in that one-year time period, and the company said revenue more than doubled to $4.4 billion. There's a quote from the company that says, quote, 2020 was without a doubt marked by unprecedented events. On the basis of our robust infrastructure, we managed to scale up our operations quickly to accommodate the rising demand. I am very proud of the team for this incredible achievement of delivering over 600 million meals to our customers in the safe space of their homes. That's from the founder and CEO of HelloFresh, Dominic Richter. He goes on to say preparing and eating food at home has taken on a whole new meaning as the pandemic hopefully winds down over the course of 2021. He was making this comment at the end of 2020. We expect consumers to continue to rely on e-commerce solutions to shop for food as many have experienced the superior value proposition that we can offer in terms of price, variety, and convenience. Now here's one that's interesting because when I looked into whether hospital systems made money or lost money during the pandemic, it was hard for me to predict which it would be. I heard so many things as the shutdowns went on. I heard that hospitals were making money, but I also heard that fewer people were going for more normal procedures, so they were losing money. I heard that they were getting a lot of money from us, taxpayers, and these COVID relief bills. So here's what I found. I looked at some of the big major hospital systems and compared their 2019 stats with their 2020 stats. So starting with community health systems, they posted a net loss in 2019 of $675 million. Well, what happened in 2020? They showed a net income of $511 million. Big difference. Then I looked at how much, if any money, the company got from taxpayers. Turns out they got $448 million in taxpayer money from COVID relief funds. So with the money they got from taxpayers, they had net income of 511 million. If you didn't count the money from taxpayers, they still made over $50 million in 2020, which is more than $700 million better than they did in 2019. Another big hospital system is Universal Health Services. They ended 2019 prior to the shutdowns and the pandemic with about $815 million net income. In 2020, their net income shot up from $815 million to $944 million. Interesting. 
but that was with the help of $413 million in COVID money from taxpayers. In other words, if they had not gotten the taxpayer money, they would have been about $250 million short of where they were the year before, although still in the plus column. The University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, they reported $420 million in revenue after expenses in 2019. That shot up from $420 million to a billion dollars in 2020, more than double. I checked to see if that company got any taxpayer COVID relief funds, and lo and behold, yes. University of Pittsburgh Medical Center got $1.1 billion in taxpayer COVID relief funds. That was responsible for really almost all of the revenue they reported in 2020 after expenses. And last but not least, I looked at America's largest hospital system, HCA, which made profits in 2019 amounting to $1.1 billion before the pandemic. They ended 2020 with $3.8 billion. That's more than triple, actually coming up upon quadruple the profits that they reported the year before. They had gotten, by the way, $6 billion in COVID-19 relief funds. Can you imagine a company getting $6 billion in cash from taxpayers? But ultimately, because they were, I guess, making so much money, they decided to return the taxpayer money. So in the end, they made their $3.8 billion dollars and from what I can tell, did not keep that $6 billion in taxpayer money. And the last category we will talk about, again, more on this in my cover story Sunday, but how did the vaccine companies do? I'm talking about the ones that made the vaccines approved here in the United States for COVID-19. Well, Moderna, one of the companies, received nearly a billion dollars in tax money related to vaccine development and then got $1.5 billion more to buy the first 100 million doses. It is popularly said that the COVID-19 vaccines are free, but in fact, we've paid for them up front. Whether you got the vaccine or not, if you paid taxes, your taxpayer money paid for these vaccines up front. So they may seem free at the moment you get the vaccine, but they were well paid for. The other company whose vaccine is approved in the United States, Pfizer, well, Pfizer reportedly passed up federal funds to develop its COVID vaccine, although it is said to have benefited from taxpayer-funded research. But taxpayers did give Pfizer $2 billion for the first 100 million doses. Again, we paid up front for these doses that are touted as free to us when we later get them. The pandemic also made some new billionaires out of vaccine industry executives. I looked up who and how much. I'm going to just use their last names, but Moderna's CEO, Bansell, if I'm saying it correctly, B-A-N-C-E-L, is now a new billionaire with $4.3 billion net worth. Moderna's chairman, Afian, A-F-E-Y-A-N, may not be saying these correctly, is a $1.9 billion new vaccine billionaire as are Moderna's top investors, Springer at $2.2 billion and Langer at $1.6 billion. Same with Moderna's vaccine producer, an executive named Lopez Belmonte is a new $1.8 billion vaccine billionaire. Then there is the CEO of BioNTech, which is Pfizer's vaccine partner. 
His name is Sahin or Sahin, S-A-H-I-N. He's a new $4 billion vaccine billionaire, as are three founders of China's vaccine manufacturer, CanSino Biologics. Those three founders are Tao, who is a new $1.3 billion billionaire, Dongshu, who is a $1.2 billion new vaccine billionaire, and Weiwa, who is a $1 billion new vaccine billionaire. Speaking of China, the world's biggest maker of PCs, China's Lenovo Group, announced that it had record results and phenomenal growth as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, with annual group revenue surging past $60 billion, which was more than $10 billion over the previous fiscal year. Their profits, that was their revenue, their profits grew even faster That's reported to be with pre-tax income of almost $1.8 billion and net income of $1.2 billion, both up more than 70% one year over the other. China doing quite well as a result of the pandemic that originated in China. Before I close the podcast today, I wanted to mention something I think is pretty interesting and pretty positive, actually because the censorship of factual information that is off the narrative, particularly off the narrative of the vaccine slash government industry, it's getting worse and worse. I'm having stories flagged by big tech that are in some cases nothing more than a reprint of an article by the BBC or a reprint of information that the CDC has on its website, even if it doesn't publicize it widely. It's kind of off the narrative information, but there's no doubt that it's accurate or an accurate representation, and yet it's being flagged falsely by the fake fact checkers uh, that belong to big tech, the fake science fact checkers who are actually industry shills, being flagged as misinformation, disinformation, lacking context, or whatnot. And I've been saying all along that one way to turn this grip on our information around is to understand that when powerful forces are censoring the information when they're telling you that they don't even want you to hear it, make up your own mind, that should be a clue for you to seek out more information about that very topic, to understand that the information they're trying to censor may very well be true or important or something that you need to hear. So if we take these heavy-handed efforts to stop us from getting information and instead say, boy, when they do that, I'm going to seek out that information, it flips the whole thing on its head. I bring that up because a couple of weeks ago, I did a report on full measure. We called it Amish COVID. And I had read in Associated Press and other publications some months before that they were the first community to achieve herd immunity for COVID-19 because according to their own account, they kind of let COVID run through when it originally came through in spring of 2020 and got over it. It's not that they had no injuries. They believe they had some illnesses and some deaths, although nothing inordinate, and they claim less than other places that shut down tightly. But then they say, then it was over. They didn't isolate. They didn't mask. They don't vaccinate. They didn't go to the hospital. They don't test. So these are assumptions on their part when they know and believe because people had symptoms of COVID that that's what it was. So it's an interesting I guess you could say social, medical, and cultural experiment as to how a community fared when they didn't do all of those recommended things 
that in retrospect, we now know were probably the wrong steps to take. So this turned out to be very controversial, not because it should be controversial, but because it's against the narrative that public health officials and the pharmaceutical industry are pushing so hard in the media. In fact, the more it seems as though the vaccines are wearing off or proving ineffective, the harder the push is to get vaccinated. There is no scientific study I've seen that doesn't say anything other than they're now wearing off after a couple of months, the vaccines. And yet, even with all that science in, there's just this push or this press for more and more people to get vaccinated with the claim that that is the way out of the pandemic. And in fact, when it comes to a national vaccine mandate, which has not yet been, as of this recording, introduced some, gosh, it's been many weeks after it was first announced that it would be coming out. Well, under the national vaccine mandate, people who were vaccinated long enough ago that all of the science says they are no longer protected would be considered safe to go to their workplace While people with natural immunity, who, according to all of the scientific studies that are published in peer review that I've seen, have at least as good a protection, longer lasting protection, and probably better protection than the vaccinated, those people who are actually safer would be considered unsafe to go to the workplace. In any event, the Amish COVID story has been falsely flagged by big tech as lacking context or other caveats so that people don't see it. But what happened? Boy, this story has gone viral, and I don't know why in the last two weeks or so it's picked up so much steam versus when it was first published around October 9th, but it's just gone wild. And where has it been getting a lot of views? On YouTube, and we don't even publicize the YouTube Full Measure channel because we post the stories at fullmeasure.news. That's where we pretty much drive the traffic, but people, I guess, found it on YouTube And as of this recording, we are at something like 1.3 million views. So you can find that yourself. It's worth looking at and sharing with your friends in particular because powerful interests do not want you to see it. You can go to our Full Measure with Cheryl Atkinson YouTube channel. Again, it's called Amish COVID and it was posted on the YouTube channel on October 11th. Meantime, I hope you will catch this week's episode of Full Measure. November 7th, for my cover story, which I call Boom, talking about the industries that did quite well during the COVID shutdown, unlike so many that were devastated. Americans are rightly alarmed by the increasingly tight grip on the news and information by special interests, corporate interests, and big tech. In my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, I tell the important inside story of how we got here and the Orwellian world where we will find ourselves if the course isn't altered. Pick up a copy of Slanted today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Ackeson Podcast, wherever you like to listen. Leave a great review if you like the podcast and share it with your friends. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.